Good morning, Grace Vineyard. It is great to be together again this morning. And as we've moved into a new lockdown, I pray that you're not feeling despondent or worried and that you're filled with the joy of the Lord and that he strengthens you and lifts you up in these challenging times. <clears throat> Before we get into the message this morning, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so blessed to be called your sons and daughters and that you love us and care for us and desire to bless us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill each one of us with your presence each and every day and that throughout the day we can rely on your strength and not on our own, that you lead us and guide us to people that you want us to encounter and to share your love with. Jesus, thank you that you've made all this possible by taking the sin of the world upon yourself and dying on the cross for me and everyone else, setting the example of what it means to live a sacrificial life. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit resurrection power that gave life back to Jesus so that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, and now he sits at your right hand. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive from you the things that you have for us in this message this morning. Amen. Now, before we get into chapter 17 of Acts this morning, I want to take us back to chapter 16 and look at four verses in that chapter that Mark did not incorporate in his message last week. I said right from the start of the series that this is not a line-by-line -line study of the book, but rather the preachers would pick out certain aspects of the chapter that they felt God was showing them to speak on. We know that Dr. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is an account to his dear friend Theophilus. Much of it is a second-hand account of what he has learned from other people. But there comes a time where the narrative changes to where it becomes a first-hand account. And that is what I want to quickly look at. Where and when did this change happen? We see it in these four verses in Acts chapter 16 verses 7 to 10. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see the shift? Verses 7 and 8 speak of they, whereas verse 10 speaks of we. It seems that Luke joined Paul, Silas and their companions in Troas. From verse 10, there are more and more references to we as he is now part of the team. It was just something that I wanted to mention. In chapter 17, I want to focus mainly on the second half of the chapter when Paul is in Athens. But I will read a few verses before we get there. So let's start with Acts chapter 17. 17 verses 1 to 3. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. 
As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Paul, as is his practice, goes to the synagogue and engages with the local Jews, reasoning with them from the scripture. He longs to see his fellow Jewish brothers come to know Jesus as their Messiah. A number of Jews and Gentiles become believers, and a church is established in Thessalonica. We know this from the letters that Paul later writes to them. There are also some Jews that are jealous of Paul's success and so stir up trouble. This trouble seems to follow Paul wherever he goes. Because of the troubles, they are sent on their way. Acts 17 verses 10 to 12. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Jews in Thessalonica hear of Paul's success, so they come to Berea and stir up trouble. Paul is sent to the coast while Silas and Timothy stay behind. Paul then goes to Athens and leaves instructions for Silas and Timothy to follow as soon as possible. He wanted the team together, not split apart. Now I'm going to read the second half of this chapter and then make some comments. So Acts chapter 17 verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself 
gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. As Paul waits for the rest of his companions to arrive in Athens, he spends time walking around the city where he notices all the idols, the false gods, and it troubles him. Paul engages with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue and reasons with them. He also spends time in the marketplace and reasons with whoever will engage with him there. Paul wants to get the message of Jesus to every and anyone who will listen to him. He's not afraid to engage in debate with anyone questioning or opposed to the truth that he is speaking. How many of us are able to engage in a meaningful debate with unbelievers in such a way that they want to hear more? Do we know our scriptures well enough to do this? Now, two groups of philosophers engage with Paul in the marketplace and think he's talking about two new gods, when in fact, he's just talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Several philosophical schools believed in the immortality of the soul, but the Greeks regarded the idea of bodily resurrection as completely ludicrous. They take Paul to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hills, This is an ancient court of great prestige, possibly responsible for licensing public lecturers. It was the place where the latest philosophies were discussed and debated. Paul is brought there to present the new teaching of Jesus Christ that he had brought to the marketplace of Athens. Paul does not begin by telling the story of Jesus but rather he finds a common point of reference, the unknown God, and Paul begins making the unknown God known to them. He points out the differences between the man-made, handcrafted, pagan gods and the Lord God, the creator of all things, who doesn't live in temples and does not need gifts from man, but rather he is the one who created everything and each one of us from one man. 
The last part of verse 26 is such an important statement for all of us to remember. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times to set for, set for them and the exact places where they should live. Did you know that God knew exactly when and where you were going to be born and where you were going to live? This is such a reassuring verse of Scripture. If you had said to me 30 years ago that I'd be living in England, I'd have told you that you were crazy. But God knew and he knew the path that we were to take to get us here. God has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us. And he takes us places for a purpose, not by accident. If you're not sure why you are where you are, then do what the next verse says. Verse 27 says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Seek God. Reach out to him. He's not far from you. In fact, he's only a call away, and you don't even need a phone to make that call. All you have to do is speak to him. He hears you, and he will answer you if you will stop and listen to him. He longs to have you speak to him and share your thoughts, your cares, and your worries with him. You can talk to God at any time, anywhere, and in whatever way you want to. Talk to God as you would talk to a person that you respect and love. After all, He is your Heavenly Father. When you do this, it's known as prayer. Prayer is just having a conversation with God. And like all good conversations, there are two people involved. So there are times that you talk and there are times that you listen. Remember that. Now, Paul is very astute. He doesn't quote scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, because most of these men would not have been familiar with the Jewish scripture. But rather, he quotes some of their own Greek poets using their words in making the unknown God known. After this, Paul reiterates the fact that God is not a man-made image of gold or silver or stone, but that he is a living God, just as we are living beings. He tells them that God forgives them of their past misunderstandings, but requires them to repent now that they know the truth of, what, of who he is and what he has done for them. Paul made an impact on some people in Athens, with a few becoming followers of Jesus Christ. But it does not seem that a church of any significance was established in Athens. We don't read of any miracles or signs and wonders being performed by Paul in Athens. We never hear what becomes of the small group of believers in Athens, and Paul never writes a letter to the church in Athens. So was Paul successful in Athens, or did he fail? If only a handful of people became believers, then there was success. A large church might not have been established, but there were a number of believers in Athens by the time Paul moved on. One life changed is worth the time and effort it takes to achieve that. We don't know what that band of people went on to do in Athens, or who was responsible for their spiritual oversight. But God would have had someone to lead and care for that group of believers. 
What can we learn from today's passage of Scripture? Firstly, when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will encounter opposition. Secondly, when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will see lives changed. Thirdly, God has determined the time that we live in and the places that where we should live. And fourthly, even if it is only one life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's reason to rejoice and make the time and effort worth it that we put in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us, you care for us, you know us, and you desire for us to be in communication with you. You desire for us to be in conversation with you. You are right here with us. Thank you, Father, that even if it's one person that we speak to and make a difference in their life, that that is important to you. We never know what that one person might go on to do, who they might become in your kingdom. So help us, Father, now to be those who will not give up, but those who will persevere. And even if it is just one, thank you for that one person whose life we can make a difference in. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you that we can remember those who, like Jesus, sacrificed their lives that others might live in freedom. Help us never to forget what Jesus has done and what those brave men and women who have served the nations around the world have done at this time. Thank you, Father. Amen. There are some questions that will come up at the end that you can discuss in your breakout groups. Have a good breakout group.